From the mountains to the coast, create memories, meet new people, and find your favorite wine, mead, or cider in NC. Download the NC Wine app or visit ncwine.org to plan your trip to North Carolina wine country today. Hi, I'm Joe. And I'm Matt. We're the NC Wine Guys. Welcome to Cork Talk. In this episode, we talk with Tina Smith and Nadia Hetzel of Cypress Bend Vineyards in Waker, North Carolina. Tina and Nadia tell us about the history of Cypress Bend Vineyards and how they incorporate some of the rich local history into the wines they produce. There was so much to talk about that we decided to make this our very first two-part episode. Wine Class with the Wine Mouths is back. This time, Jesse and Jessica talk to us about the grape Arcazzatelli. This episode is made possible in part by a grant from the North Carolina Wine and Grape Council. You can learn more about the council by going to their website, ncwine.org. So sit back, pour a glass, and listen. So we're here today live and in person, fully vaccinated, <laughs> with the fine folks from Cypress Bend, Tina Smith and Nadia Hetzel. Welcome to Cork Talk. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. We're glad to be here and glad you are visiting us. We are too. Yeah, absolutely. So Tina, how about introducing yourself and telling us a bit about Cypress Bend? Okay. Well, I'm Tina Smith and my husband Dan and I own the winery. Um, we're located on a family farm that's been in the family for over 200 years. And it was established by a, a um, couple from Scotland. And it was Catherine Campbell and Daniel White. And they came here in, in 1807. They bought the land with her dowry. They bought a thousand acres. And uh, they used it for farming and they used it for a home place. But eventually, you know, other things were done and um, it was a, it was a um, wonderful family place. But, Daniel White became, was a Baptist minister that came from Scotland, which is basically unheard of. But, um, but he had been to a revival in Scotland, which brought him to uh, America. He had, as all good Baptist ministers, he had a fever. He had gotten sick, had a fever, and he was prayed over. And, and Catherine said, if he makes it through this, he said, I'll do whatever you want. I'll go wherever you want to go. And when he woke up from the fever, he said, I saw my congregation in the Americas. Oh, and wow. so off they went. So they came here, and they came in through the Cape Fear, and then they settled here and bought this land with her dowry. So, and it stayed in the family all these years. We still have close to the 1,000 acres. We've sold to a few people, but it's um, probably 900 acres left that are still within the family. So, um, and so we had a large part of it. We had about 210 acres, and uh, we decided in 2000, well, we moved back here in 1994. And we built our house down the river, and um, we were both fully employed. Dan was with the Army, and I was working with um, a company out of Raleigh. And so we were, I was traveling a lot, and he was doing a lot of work with the military, and we had some big programs that he was doing. And then I eventually joined him in some of those projects and worked with him as a consultant in those projects. So we traveled a lot with the military and did a program called the M-Gator program, which is the Military Gator and worked a lot with John Deere, and then became um, representatives with John Deere, basic consultants for John Deere, that were putting, you know, putting this piece of equipment out with the military. So we did that, but we wanted a retirement project. So in 2000, we started looking around, thinking about what we wanted to do. And in 2001, we decided that we were 
We actually, it was funny, we were at a weapons of mass destruction conference wow, out in Salt Lake City. <laughs> and that's where we got the idea that we were going to grow grapes. <laughs> so oh, okay. it had nothing to do with weapons of mass destruction. <laughs> but we were talking to a uh, contractor that was working um, and doing buying for the Marines. And he lived in Virginia, and he and Dan were having a conversation about John Deere tractors. And, um, and so, because we were working for John Deere at the time, and so we were going doing all these Army military conferences. And, um, but they were talking about the tractors, and so then he was looking for an orchard tractor. And Dan wanted to know why you needed an orchard tractor, and he said, well, I'm growing grapes, Chardonnay grapes and, and Cabernet grapes up in Virginia. And so Dan got very interested, and they went off and had this conversation for about two hours, and Dan came back with a napkin and a drawing and said, here's what we're going to do. <laughs> we're going to grow grapes. So we were all excited, came back, and um, started investigating what we could grow here in North Carolina. And um, I'm a Maryland girl, so I you know, didn't know what North Carolina was going to grow other than uh, potatoes, sweet potatoes and corn and whatever else. And so... Um, so then we wound up investigating and found out that muscadine was the best thing that we could grow on the property. And we already had um, vines growing that my father-in-law had planted years ago. And there were actual cuttings from the mother vine, from Manio, because he brought original cuttings from there way back when. And so that was in the, in the uh, 50s when he planted those. So, and that was a big arbor that was down by our house. And, um, and so, that, you know, that lived on until about probably sometime in 2004 or five, and we took it down because it, st it had really sort of gotten destroyed in a, in a, in a hurricane that we had had that, come, that had come through. Mm. And, um, and then we had decided also in 2001 that we were going to start growing grapes. So we, um, we took that down and decided to plant about 10 acres at the time. So um, that was in 2001. And one, we started doing that, prepping the land and growing the grapes. And then uh, the next year, we planted another um, 10, and then we planted another 15 after that. So by 2004, we decided that uh, we wanted to do more than just grow the grapes and sell them. We just wanted to, we wanted to do the winery. So we opened the winery in 2005, and um, we're still in shock. <laughs> so, but you know, you sort of get into these things and you think that, you know, growing the grapes and just selling them is, is going to be the best thing. But when there wasn't that big of a market, at that time there were only 23 wineries in North Carolina. And by the time we opened, I think we were number 46 or something. And, and uh, Childress was just opening. So, um, you know, I was attending a lot of meetings with Mark and, at that time and we were going through all of the things. and. He had a lot of expertise and was wondering, you know, what, what was North Carolina going to do when everything grew? But, um, but as we see, it's really come along. But so, you know, we opened the doors in June of 2005 and we've been going strong ever since. So um, we're still growing the muscadine. Uh, we haven't planted anymore. We have 35 acres and um, that has been servicing us well for those years. We have had to buy grapes at certain times depending on what the crop has done. But um, we, um, you know, we stopped working with John Deere sometime around 2013, I think it was. We had about a 15-year run with them, and so we finally were able to concentrate fully on the winery and um, and and get things going. So, and then we found Nadia, and Nadia has been our winemaker since 2014, mm -hmm. right? And so. 
um, we, um, you know, we've been really pleased and happy with all the things that she has done and her knowledge with the wines. I'm sure you'll ask her about all those and she'll tell you about those. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, but that's, that's basically how we got started. You know, other than when people say to, to us, you know, why did you get started in it? And we say we stayed at a Holiday Inn Express. <laughs> <laughs> and the next day, there we were. Wow. <laughs> we had a winery. But yeah, yeah it, it's been fun. And, and with it being the land, there's also you know, the fact that there's such a long legacy with this farm. And not that it had grapes here the entire time. I mean, there were grapes that they consumed just from ones that they had grown, but not for commercial purposes. But, um, but they were selling watermelons and strawberries out of here and corn and that kind of thing. So it was a commercial farm to that sense where they were selling those crops. But, um, and Dan's father was doing all of that, you know, all those years. And Dan grew up with all that going on. So sometimes people, you know, taste the strawberry and taste the watermelon in some of our wines because it's coming from those same fields where we have the vines. But it's, um, it's, you know, it's been fun to watch the growth and it's been fun to, to see, you know, what we can do with it and the wines that we've developed. And one of our biggest goals was to, you know, we tasted a lot of the different wines that were available at the time. And we knew that we could make an exceptional wine. And, we, you know, if you just apply the right techniques and the right um, processes that you could, you could do it. And um, so we did. And we concentrated on making sure that we could make dry muscadine wines. Um, not all muscadine wines have to be sweet. It's what the tradition has been, but they don't have to be. There's a lot of sweet wine drinkers out there and people enjoy that and it's all wonderful. We have sweet wines, but we wanted to see what would happen when it would become a dry wine. And of course, all wines are dry after they're fermented. So you, on purpose, have to make it sweet. <laughs> so it's just how you make it sweet. It's an interesting but, perspective. Yeah. So, you know, and tasting it right out of the tanks is wonderful. I mean, and then once you, you know, refine it and, and, you, and you get Nadia to put her blessing on it, then <laughs> um, it turns into a wonderful wine. And I think a lot has to be said for that when you know, we have people, people outside of the state buy the drier wines. Uh, in state, they're looking for the sweet wines because they know muscadine. They know that it's, you know, it's something that you, know, you can get from muscadine. But they don't realize that, you know, it is a dry wine, actually, before you make it sweet. So that's, we've, been, we've been fortunate to be able to, to establish that as a brand that we have and a name for, you know, that people know, well, they have great dry wines or they have great semi-dry wines. And, um, and we actually, and I'm not boasting here, but we are the only North Carolina winery, whether Vinifera or Muscadine, that's won the cup from the State Fair five times. So I think quite the accomplishment. I know. So we've done something, right? It's <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> a good sign. We're on the right track. I know. I know. Absolutely. So. so Nadia, why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit about give us your introduction. Okay, well, my name is Nadia Hessel and I'm the winemaker here at Cypress Bin Vineyards. And I studied in Germany. So I did a three year apprenticeship as a vincer. And that's like a vintner, I suppose it's more vineyard related, but also cellar cellar related. And I pretty much cut my teeth on Rieslings and all these very interesting, very aromatic, flavorful varieties like Müller Thurgau, Scheurebe, um, Weissburgunder, um, the typical German varietals. And actually in Germany, they don't drink the wines that sweet. So I've always been intrigued by that kind of uh, variety. 
And coming back to the States with my husband, who's from Bonn, Germany, so he's also from Germany, uh, we wound up in Texas. I was working with Blanc du Bois, which is a hot climate hybrid. And that's also very aromatic and very fruit forward and so forth. And then I moved on to Iowa and I was working with cold climate varietals. So that's like La Crescent, um, Marquette, and um, trying to think Brianna is another one and Edelweiss. And so those varietals are also very, very fruit forward. Um, very aromatic, but they're very intriguing, and they're they're a part of now becoming the part of the culture of the United States. Mm-hmm. And then we moved towards North Carolina. Um, my folks live in South Carolina, so it was a great opportunity to to be closer to them. But then, when I came out here to Cypress Bend Vineyards, I tried the wines, and I was absolutely blown away by how clear and clean and beautiful the Muscadine presented itself. So it was like a very good example of how. Um, muscadine is uh, how it if produced very very well that it just makes a very nice um, fruit forward varietal it doesn't have to be sweet they were doing it dry here as well and I'm just intrigued by a lot of variety like I don't see myself working on um, reds in California somewhere I, I, I tend to be the the white wine girl with a lot of flavor and so forth and so um, met Dan and Tina, wonderful, wonderful people, and very blessed to, to be here and um, have been here ever since and just in, enjoying working with these grapes, which are the indigenous grape of the southeastern United States. How cool is that? You know, it's an heirloom heritage thing from this area, something that cooks and chefs should be jumping on in their restaurants and so forth that they really want to express how the wines were originally in this area. And so it's it's really neat being working in this area, being in this niche, and I really want to see great things happen to Muscadine and see a lot of people get on board with realizing just how unique it is and how special it is to this area. So I love being here at Cypress Bend Vineyards. <laughs> we just added on to the building, and so I've got like a new playroom, a new play area, so we'll see some new wines come out for sure, new expressions of, of Muscadine. She's yeah it's the geese that's flying around here <laughs> so yeah um it's a it's a very interesting grape to work with it is different than vinifera um completely the chemistry is similar in certain ways actually similar to cold climate finals low ph moderate TA and so forth not much malic acid there are some components that are that are there that we don't fully understand yet and luckily we're getting more um, on board with universities that are going to help us try and locate exactly what Mm -hmm. components are in the grape like I don't think there's been a mapping of the aromatic profile exactly um, like a gas chromatography sort of mapping of the aromatic so we could see oh this is in there or this aromatic in here that's like from Gewürztraminer or whatever in other varietals, we, we don't really know that. So, I mean, we make the wines and we, we love the results, but it's it's great to get some feedback there and know like the acid profile and some of the other things. Just One of the things, yeah, like flavor profiles for sure. Mm-hmm. One of the things they found out is apparently it has a high elagic acid content, which vinifera doesn't naturally have. It's not inherent in vinifera, it doesn't, doesn't become part of the vinifera um, wine until a red or so forth is aged in a barrel. That's where it gets its elagic acid from. Otherwise, it's not in the grape itself. But muscadine, on the other hand, doesn't have very much tannin to work with. Um, hardly, hardly much at all. But we have that elagic. So that 
that gives you a different grape if you're trying to make like a heavier red out of some of the reds. So there's there's things we're learning. It's very interesting. It's like being on the forefront of something, even though it's very well known and very... Uh, um, it's been undiscovered. Yeah, it's still undiscovered. It's like yeah. still yeah, in the, in the um, pioneering stages, I suppose. Yes. Yeah, it's starting to explore. <laughs> that was one of the things that, that intrigued us in the very beginning. And we went, when we decided what we were going to grow, we went to a Muscadine Association meeting and we were, we were just blown away with the number of resource people from NC State. There were about 17 professors there. They were doing things in enology, in, in enology and viticulture, and they were doing, um, there was entomologists, and I mean, they were just, they were all there, and they were all there willing to help, and they were all very excited about that muscadine. And so when people see, but, but because I think it's been a, a grape that has just, is a is a familiar grape to everyone here and oh it just grows in the woods you know and and people forever and ever have been eating it as they walk along but the flavor is wonderful and i mean when you when you first i remember when i was up in maryland that's where i met dan i, I grew up in baltimore and um and that's where we met and he was up there in the army but he would come up with tubs full of these muscadine grapes from down south and you know, and he open up the tub, and here were these great big, huge grapes. And I'd take a taste of one. I'm like, hmm, okay. <laughs> so, but then after you eat a few more, it was like, man, when are you going to get another box? <laughs> it grows on you, doesn't it? Oh, it does. It does. It's, <laughs> a, it's an acquired taste, but it what it what didn't take very long to acquire that taste. And then when we had the vineyards, I just would walk the vineyards when I was doing my five miles, and I just would eat grapes as I walked along because I just pulled them <laughs> off, checking and eating and. Um, and the dog would even eat, even eat them, but that wasn't good for the dog, I guess, I don't know. But, um, but she loved them. I mean, all the dogs love them, but they're not supposed to eat them. But, um, but yeah, I mean, as Nadi was saying, it's just, a, it's an amazing grape and it has an amazing characteristic that no other grape has. And, and the health benefits are out there and, yeah. and the research that's going on. And you have this whole slow food movement. I mean, they've rediscovered Carolina gold rice and some other things that are just these quintessential area staples and vegetables that grow here, okra and, and whatnot, and different types of things that are really making their way into the slow movement. They're very, I know this is the wrong word to say, but trendy, shall I say? <laughs> it's a new super fruit and, for everyone, too. Yeah, and so this this grape, I mean, it totally belongs on the table with those with those sorts of that sort of principle of um, bringing back tradition, bringing back these these heirlooms and respecting what was there before and, and producing something beautiful out of it. Very cool. And I, I think as, you know, as the more and more research that's done and, and the council is, the Great Council is funding some research to be able to do these flavor panels and, and um, asset panels and things like that. And so, um, and App State and App State looks like they're going to take. Yeah, on they're the going project. to take on the project, yeah. and some some at NC State a little bit, maybe, maybe NC State yeah. too. But that's one thing we miss is the you know having that the the resource of NC State because but a lot of those professors all retired, and they moved on, and it's you know we saw that back in the early two thousands when we were starting, but you know they had all been at it since like nineteen sixty three. Some of them even worked on the breeding programs to you know to develop wow. these grapes. And um, there was Dr. Dan Carroll, who was in the enology department, and I don't know if you all have met him. We met him. Yeah, he's a great guy. He, you know, he was he worked with Dr. Noble and Dr. Um, Dr. Carlos. <laughs> I think <laughs> the other, but the ones that developed Carlos and Noble, 
And, and those, those came out of the breeding program at NC State. And they've been doing breeding of the grapes since 1902, wow. 1907, somewhere around that time frame. So it's been a long time. But then, you know, all of that changed late 90s, early 2000s. And then a lot of the people started, um, you know, started leaving and, and just retiring. And, and young people weren't coming along to fill those, those voids. And we had Barclay Poling was the, the small fruit specialist at the time. And now we have wonderful Mark Hoffman, who has filled that gap. And, um, and that, he's done a wonderful job of getting out to everyone. But he's only one person, but he needs, right. he needs, we need mm-hmm. more of him. Correct. Um, but we don't want to lose him, so we don't want to tire him out too much. <laughs> but he's, he's great for the industry. So we just, um, and that's what we need to work on. We're working with Fayetteville Tech Community College, and they have a, a horticultural program. And the students have been coming out now for two years, I think. Um, and they've been taking classes with Nadia, and she's been, they've been here to do plantings and to do harvest and to do um, um, bottling and whatever else. Pretty much been, everything. Yeah, they've they've done done everything. a chance to touch every aspect of yeah. winemaking. And they're all very enthusiastic. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so it's a great experience for them, I'm sure. So they're trying, they're, you know, they have the viticulture course, and we're talking about you know, doing an enology course, so we just have to convince them. But that's going to be great for all the growers on the eastern side of the state or anywhere in the state that are looking sure. for you know, qualified help. And right now, we all need help Ooh. because of, it's just been a strange year coming out of that, and everyone's losing their labor force, and um, or have lost the labor force because of the shutdowns and the different problems. But you know, there'll be students out there, hopefully, that will be able to fill those gaps. So we're, we're proud of Nadia for taking that on. <laughs> One more thing for her to do, right? Yeah, but she's, I'm sure she's a great teacher. She, she just has a good personality. It's great. It's wonderful working with these kids. You can't fluster her. She just laughs. <laughs>, <laughs> it's better than the opposite. So. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. She's so not, she's not Cruella the Witch. <laughs> no. No, she's not. Definitely not. So it's probably a good time for us to take a quick break. Okay. When we come back, let's talk about the varieties there that you have planted here. Alright. It's time for Wine Class with the Wine Mouths. Jesse and Jessica, welcome back. Thank Thanks. you for having us. So we've been exploring great varieties over the course of the year. So what variety are we going to talk about today? Today we're going down to Georgia to talk about our Cazzatelli. Hmm. Now not just regular Georgia. <laughs> Georgia the country. Um, Thanks for clarifying. Yes. <laughs> Um, so this grape originated in Georgia, the country, and it has been dated back to 3000 BC. They found seeds of Arcatzatelli grapes in clay vessels there. And so the name Arcatzatelli means red stem. But yes, yeah, so it was a popular grape in the Soviet Union prior to its fall and in Soviet wine. And, and also, so at one point it was responsible for more than 18% of all Soviet wine production, which who knew? <laughs> that there was a Soviet wine production and that it was that popular. But uh, today it's still popular in Eastern Europe and former Soviet countries like Ukraine and Bulgaria. And also in North Carolina. Yes, <laughs> right up the road. We're going on a field trip later. <laughs> so yeah, I wish we could get more of the Arcatzatelli here, but we do have a pretty good number here in the States. So, well, one. <laughs> <laughs> Not bad. Right, one. You got to start folks. somewhere. You got to, yeah. yeah. <laughs> 
nowhere to go but up. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So how does it do in the vineyard then? So in the vineyard, it does really well. It does really great for cold areas, which may not necessarily mean that it needs to grow in North Carolina. But as you can see with Eastern Europe and things like that, it's a very cold, hardy grape. It's grown in New York. So that's a benefit for the vineyard. So it also is a high acid grape. Um, and so the wines can be excessively tart, but it's good for the vineyard. Um, high acid is usually a, a very good thing in the vineyard. Um, it lets you wait later if you want to, to harvest it. So you can get good sugar and you still have the acid there. So that's a good benefit for North Carolina. Um, another thing with the vineyard too is we don't have a ton of information as far as how it does with um, mildew and different diseases and stuff just because there is one in North Carolina. So the verdict's still out kind of on North Carolina and the humidity and stuff and how it would really do widespread if we grew it here. So it certainly would be interesting if mm -hmm. other folks planted it and, and made a variety, but certainly Davaste and Childman is doing a really good job with, with our cats, really their signature variety. So good stuff. Yeah. And we could always use more research. Yeah, sure. But in the winery, um, it does well. It's just, it's a white wine. I don't know that we mentioned that, but it's a white wine and it can be made into various things. You can make it a dry wine, semi-sweet, sweet, fortified, can also be used in brandy. So it has a full scope there. And also in more popular items, it's being made into orange wine. So as was mentioned, the name means red stem. So there is a little bit of color um, to the grape and stem. So you can get a little bit of orange wine out of it if you macerate it. Very trendy, but also, you know, historically accurate. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> It's not like it's new just in this last little bit. Right. So, yeah, speaking of that, in, in Georgia, they had the Quervy, which, you know, the clay, the clay um, pots where they made wine. So some places are still using that kind of to make their Arcacitelli, just kind of a look back to the past and how it was always made, and it's still being done that way in some places. So that's pretty cool. Yeah, that is fun. Good way to pay homage to mm -hmm. their, their ancestors. His vocab word too. Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully we're saying it right. I don't know. I forgot to Google that one. <laughs> so how about the flavors of Arcatzatelli? Yeah, so uh, like Jesse mentioned, it's a pretty versatile grape, so it can go lots of different ways, but the primary flavors to look for would be pineapple, white peach, green apple, lime, some that I wouldn't necessarily identify on my own probably, but resin, tarragon, fennel. Hmm. And I also find hints of. I think it's classified as an aromatic white, so you've okay. got some of those. Very cool. And I guess being aromatic, it would pair well with most foods then, especially I know you've been pairing, you've been cooking with a little more fennel recently. So. Yes, <laughs> we have. Actually, I just saw a recipe come through with fennel. I might try next week. If I, can, I guess, is it in season? I don't know. Anyways, but yeah, so that would be a nice pairing. Other suggestions we saw were... Um, Lebanese, Turkish, and Iranian, or Indian. I don't know if we have a good pairing on our own. It goes well with most foods. It's very food-friendly, I find. I would say seafood is a, is a good pairing with it as well. Mm -hmm. I think we've done crab cakes before. But yeah, I mean, any kind of food with a little bit of spice, too, and, and kind of fresh and lively is a, mm -hmm. probably a good choice. That's three episodes in a row we've mentioned crab cakes. <laughs> That's true. We, we do enjoy our crab cakes. The universe is trying to tell us that, that that needs to happen. So yeah. Well, and I think with this wine too, because it can be made different ways, and depending on if you pull out some of those aromatics, and it 
could go with a lot of different things just depending on how it was made and if it's an orange wine or if it was oak aged any or if it's sweet. So true. It's kind mm-hmm. of an open door for food pairings. I could see that. I could see that. Any other notes on Arcat Satelli? <laughs> Thank you, <laughs> Thanks, Helen. Helen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, to quote Helen, oh, <laughs> now we're going to take a little field trip and go have some in the wild. Our first outing in a year. So we'll, we'll report back. <laughs> it should be fun. This has been a great time. Jesse and Jessica, thank you very much. Thank you. You can find out more information about the Winemouths by going to their website, winemouths.com, or on Facebook and Instagram at Winemouths. That's W I N E M O U T H S. And now, back to the show. So let's go back to the grapes. So let's talk about the varieties there that you have planted here and talk about how those are a little bit different than what people might be going to the farmer's market and picking up to eat, right? There's there's over a hundred varieties of muscadine grapes. And um, what we have here and we chose to do are the Carlos and the Noble and the Magnolia. And we have those for our wine production mainly because, as I said before, they came out of the North Carolina State Breeding Program because at the time, the Scuppernon grape that was growing here naturally, they were a smaller grape. They didn't have enough juice in them to be able to, you know, to, to suffice for making wine. You had to have so many of them in order to, to get the juice out of it. So when they did the breeding program, they developed these grapes that were specifically, you know, even though they still had seeds in them, they were specifically bigger and you know that meant to carry more juice which they do and not to have a, a wet stem scar and that kind of thing hmm. so those are the ones that uh, we found were the best ones and what you know some of the other people at the time were using for making wine and so there was no reason to go to anything else you know it, it, they're just you know it, it grew well it was a self-pollinator um, so you know that's what we planted and um, we have more carlos than anything else um, we have several acres, uh, probably four, five, six acres of Noble, and the rest is Carlos and Magnolia. Mm. So Magnolia is a little difficult. Um, it's a little tricky sometimes. It likes to, you know, develop in different stages. Um, and But we find that the grape has like four or five different sets of fruit. And so the first two go to the birds, and, you know, the rest of them are what we, we get for the harvest and um, most of that. <laughs> so... <laughs> But, um, you know, that's, they're the ones that we do. And then we also have an area of Pick Your Own, which has about four or five other varieties. Hmm. Um, there's, we have um, Summit, and we have Nesbitt. Nesbitt, is that Nesbitt. the big one? We have Nesbitt, and we have Doreen, and we have Triumph, and we have, what else? Hmm. What else is in there? There are several others that we Fry put in. Or something? I don't know. <laughs> something like that. But there <laughs> are some that are just, they, they, they'll grow to a larger size grape, like the Nesbitt is, it's, you know, it's like two cherries together. But they're, you know, they're, it's a huge grape. It's not as big as a Supreme, but it's, you know, Supreme is like a small plum. But, <laughs> and they're wonderful if you can grow them. And we have a few vines of, of the, the Supreme uh, that we're testing, but we can't, you know, they just won't, they're not growing too well for us, but... We're working with them. Um, those are they're really well sought after for the pick your own, and a lot of people in China want those. A lot of people up in Canada are asking for them. Mm. So there's 
there's some people here on the East Coast that are doing primarily the, the pick your own stuff or or the you know the commercial fresh pick or fresh market grapes and um, Caudal is actually working in I think with Brazil and they have several hundred acres planted in Brazil mm-hmm. and they're working with you know importing and exporting back and forth so that we have muscadines on the table longer than just the season that we have now. So we're getting them in from Georgia sometime uh, late July, early August. So they beat us to the table. Sure. And then ours all come in sometime between August and October. And most of us are in September. I know in the western part they're getting them mainly in October. And so, so we're spread out a little bit, but we like to see them in the springtime too. And I think that's what he's working on. And there are a lot of people that are working just to, you know, it's a co-op that, that feeds him. And so all those growers on the eastern part are sending those grapes into the co-op and then they're doing different things. And they're going up north with them and they're going um, into South America. So, you know, that's a good thing. If we can get that going, then that becomes, you know, a, especially with, again, with the health benefits, people are looking for that grape. And eating the seed and the skins with it is the best thing for you. That's where the elagic acid is, is in the skins and the seed and you know you just people spit those things out but <laughs> see i like the skins I'm yeah one of those i do too the, the skins the seed i'm still not well the seed you just have to start crunching you know yeah. just get it out of your head it's like a cracker yeah you know, like nut cereal it's the same thing i mean yeah. i never liked grape nut cereal so. yeah well, if, you, if you put them in the refrigerator and you know some people you know, do that and then they have them with their cereal or whatever and just like another fruit if you cut it in half, it's a little easy. You only get half the seed yeah. at one time. Sure. <laughs> sure. Sure. But yeah, but there's that's you know that we've stuck to just uh, primarily the the juice ones that we need for to make the juice for the wine. Yeah, there's like a whole philosophy behind eating it, and everybody's got one. Like, oh, yeah. <laughs> Everybody says suck out the pulp and then spit out the seeds and the skin, but you're like, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, that's not what you need to do. You need that. You know, eat it, pick it's it up off the ground. So we talked about the, the grapes, now how about some of the wines that you produce then? Okay, so we tend to make things in a very kind of sort of crafted, hands-on uh, way. In other words, we produce uh, using our own grapes, if we possibly can, only. And uh, we do different batches where we have very dry, completely dry, going all the way up to sweeter wines, because that's, you know, the public still wants the sweeter wines, and that's what they're... They're usually generally tending towards when they first approach muscadine. And I think that's probably a general thing anyway with wine drinking. A lot of people start on the sweet spectrum and then slowly work their cells back to, to drier. Right. So we produce um, a dry out of the magnolia grape and out of the Carlos grape. And we're working on a, a dry noble. We've tried to barrel age it. And again, we still don't know exactly what the components are there. But we do this um, different varying blends then, and we go from dry all the way into the sweeter spectrum. And the interesting thing about that is as you start to add sugar, even in the smallest quantities, you start to get a shift in the aromatic profile. And the reason for that is because the molecules that become volatile then or volatilized, uh, they tend to bind onto glucose. So once they form their full molecular structure then um, with uh, glucose, 
they tend to be more volatile and therefore the more sugar you're adding, the more aromatic the wine then becomes. And mm -hmm. so you can start off with the very same batch of Carlos and just sweeten it in small increments up to a, a very sweet level if you wish. And you'll find that you have very varying wines then in the end, which is the fascinating thing about adding sugar. And the fact that this wine is so very aromatic you're going to have even greater expressions of that. And so we found that there's a place where you can balance that, um, the sweetness to the, the aromatic profile, and you really come up with something that just is a total beautiful expression of muscadine without being cloying and overly sweet. And we want people to experience that and understand that you can have this wine in drier levels and it's very very elegant actually at a very dry level so it pairs with a lot of different foods it's very versatile and people zero, like zero percent residual sugar. yes zero percent residual sugar we're working with and so they're very elegant expressions of the wines i mean in in germany too they have these very flavorful aromatic wines and they don't necessarily drink them sweet at all like we tend to get them here in the states our sweeter rieslings and therefore same thing with any other grape and we're just slowly but surely trying to get that message out there. They're very wonderful to work with. And we just pull all the stops when it comes to production that we treat it just like a vinifera would be treated. And therefore we get these very clean, very beautiful light results. We don't, we don't consider it a different wine. A lot of people in North Carolina want to diverse, they want to call it two diverse groups of wine, but it's not. I mean, it, it's just like, you know, there are 10,000 different grapes that are out there that people make wine from. Muscadine is just another one of those. Right, absolutely. And, you know, it's the Vitus rotundifolia. Mm -hmm. And that is what we're working with. And that's what we can grow in this area. And, you know, people will find an area in Europe or in Germany or somewhere where only this soil and this climate makes this fantastic grape and it makes a fantastic wine. Mm -hmm. Well, guess what? You're in Wagram and you found it. And you have one, <laughs> we're exactly. Here. We're here. And so, how special is that? Yeah. yeah. So, And that's what people need to understand about the Muscadine. They have to stop forgetting that um, it was their granddaddy's wine. And, you know, it's just, it grew here indigenously, just just as if you went to some little island out in the, in the Pacific and found grapes growing. The explorers came here and found these grapes growing and thought that they'd make excellent wines and these are people coming from Europe that had Burgundies and things over there. And so they were saying, you know, this, this would be an excellent wine. And so, of course, it became, and we were the number one wine state in, eight, in the 1840 census. So, I mean, that was a great thing, right? So, <laughs> yeah, and, it's, it, it and it wasn't vinifera. And it wasn't vinifera, it was muscadine. <laughs> yeah. 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 And, and that's the thing that people don't understand. And I think there's a... An education for the consumer and also for the professionals that are involved in the wine industry that they need to understand. And it's just like if someone, you know, it comes along and you say Tremonette or you say some of these other German wines that Nadia was spilling off in the beginning, I couldn't even <laughs> pronounce. But, um, but you, if you said that to someone here, they wouldn't know what that is. Right. And so I think it's, a, it's an educational thing and it's just getting beyond the you know, the, just the familiarity of knowing what that grape is and it's grown in the backyard. Well, these other grapes grow in other people's backyards in other places or wild in other areas, yeah. and they've been cultivated just as the muscadine's been cultivated here. So so our, our goal around here is to make sure people understand we're just not, you know, a native grape that just has been in the woods and we pulled it out and made wine with. We've cultivated it. We're using 
grapes that came from a breeding program and they were made to produce wine for North Carolina so that North Carolina has its very own. Yeah, getting and, over those preconceived notions and, yeah. and seeing past it right. and seeing it for what it is and it, it makes it makes a big difference when people you know can understand like as Nadia said get past that preconceived notion that it's just you know oh my granddaddy made that or you know we used to just stick it in a in a barrel put a whole bunch of sugar in it and it turned into wine you know and so yeah but, that's how my grandpa made wine he wasn't using muscadine he was using pumpkin. he enjoyed it right he, I mean when I was a kid my first exposure to wine they, yeah. they I, I would ask for it. Yeah. Oh, wow. They, they would give me like a little teeny bit right. in the bottom of the Dixie, you know, the right. bathroom Aww. Dixie cups. Right, right, right. <laughs> the paper cups. Well, see, now, you know, we had the we had the grape juice, and my grandkids love the grape juice. And when they were little, they called it, they called me B, and so they called that B juice. Because hmm. B always had this special juice. And so they loved that taste. And so, and that's sort of the juicy juice generation of kids enjoy the, the taste of the muscadine because it is fruit forward. Mm -hmm. And it, it does have that juicier taste. And I think nowadays with the trends with the millennials and they're looking for things that are uh, less alcoholic and fruitier tasting, I think the muscadine suits them very well because it, you know, we're, we're at 12% alcohol. And some of them are, you know, you can find that, you know, 11 or 10, something around those. Some people might be a little bit less than that. But um, but it does have that fruit forward taste, and if you do like them sweeter, then you can you can get them. We go from a zero percent to a ten percent residual sweetness. So my son is uh, ten years old, and every time he comes here to visit me, he hit, he heads straight over to the slushy machine where it's full of muscadine juice. <laughs> muscadine juice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. he yeah. just loves it. Yeah. So and and people, you know, they they're used to that taste and they like it. And if we can just get the rest of the world to know about it. And we have several people now in North Carolina that are introducing things to the judges, the wine judges, and writing, rewriting, you know, how to judge a muscadine because they're using vinifera judging characteristics instead of using muscadine characteristics. And so, and, and if you asked a lot of uh, people about it, they really wouldn't know what it was. Now, Nadia said when you all were in Germany, you they brought you muscadines. Yeah, or we brought them over and. Everybody undoubtedly, like um, friends that have wineries uh, that are in the wine industry, they were all very, very blown away by like, what is this? Very intrigued and wanted more, wanted to understand more about it. And I think that that's pretty true for industrial mm -hmm. professionals. Like if if you're really into wine, to me, it's just something that should be on your bucket list for sure <laughs> to yeah. experience because right. it is a part of the culture, a part of history and something extremely unique to to put under your belt of, yeah, I've tried this wine, I've tried that variety, I've tried that wine. It's mm -hmm. it's important to know about. Yeah, and it is. Yeah, so I think I think that's one thing that you take it out of North Carolina and people thoroughly enjoy it. We did yeah. we did one um, tasting one time up at the museum in Washington D.C. and it was a USA Today um, um, tasting that they were doing. So it was a it was a completely different crowd. And so we were in there, and they just fell in love with the Riverton and the Christinas and Libby. And it was just, where can we get this? Where can we buy this? You know, and they had no conception of where it came from or you know what, what what muscadine was or anything. They just it was a grape that they thoroughly enjoyed, and and, and the taste was so different than what they'd had in Chardonnays. And people said, oh, I I would prefer this over a Chardonnay any day. So those kinds of things encouraged us to continue with what we were doing and to make. A better dry wine, and and that it can be done. It's just getting over that little hurdle of 
what are you and where have you come from? <laughs> are you an alien or what? And so, yeah, that's, and that's just, it's a, it's a little bit of a hard road, but we stick to it and we keep at it. That's it for this episode of Cork Talk. Check back soon for the next episode where we continue the conversation with Tina and Nile. If you like this episode, be sure to subscribe to the podcast and leave us a rating and review. It helps others find Cork Talk and lets us know how we can improve. Did you know we have a Patreon page? You'll get patron-only content, early access to each show and more when you sign up. You can find more information at patreon.com slash corktalk. And don't forget to follow us on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at NC Wine Guys. Until next time, and remember, work only talks when it's out of the box. Cheers! This episode is made possible in part by a grant from the North Carolina Wine and Grape Council.